Well, good evening. It's good to see you all. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. And let's, uh, let's pray for a moment. Lord, as we look into your word, we, um, Lord, want to come with ready hearts, ready minds. Lord, we want your word to have its effect in our lives. Lord, it's living and active and powerful. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying tonight. Lord, as we continue through the book of Hebrews and all the wonderful things that uh, you have been teaching us, Lord, about this glorious new covenant, Lord, what it means to be a child of God and have entered in uh, by faith, Lord, into the Holy of Holies. Lord, continue to teach us, um, especially tonight as we look at the joy that is set before us. Bless our time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, if you've been following along with us in our studies through Hebrews, then you'll remember that chapter 12. In chapter 12, we've been uh, learning what is needed to stay the course and to run the race that is set before us with endurance. Tonight, we're going to expand a little bit more on what is said in verse 2. If you'll look back at verse 2, he says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So again, in a previous study, we discussed that it is absolutely essential in order for you to run your race with endurance that you're looking unto Jesus. Amen? In order to endure difficulties and hardships and persecution, we must be looking unto Jesus. So, I think there's a dual meaning in that phrase, looking unto Jesus. First of all, it certainly means that God did not intend for you to run alone. Amen? You're not in this by yourself. Jesus is not only the author of this race, he is also the finisher. We need to be looking unto him in faith, following his leading all the way to the finish line. As we saw last week, this race is not a sprint, but it's a marathon. Can you say amen? It's a marathon. And as we go from one challenge to the next, we must be looking unto Jesus. That means trusting and and obeying him, asking and receiving from him, knowing that he will never leave us or forsake us, believing that he is our ever-present help in time of trouble. And his word says to us, that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But without him, I can do nothing. So that tells me that all the grace that is needed to run this race with endurance is available to me, available to me if I will humble myself and in faith, if I'm looking unto Jesus, dependent on him, relying on him, trusting in him, asking and receiving from him with thanksgiving. 
and feeding on his faithfulness. And if you ever feel like you just want to give up, I was reminded of this wonderful assurance from Isaiah 40. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So looking unto Jesus, it's essential to run the race with endurance. Now, the other aspect of looking unto Jesus is the example that he has set for us. Notice in verse 2, when he says, looking unto Jesus, he reminds us of the course that Jesus was given to run and what he had to endure, what he did endure, and that he finished the race. It says he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus has set for us the perfect example of what it means to run the race of faith with endurance to the end. Never using his divine powers for his human needs, we read that he often went to a secluded place and prayed. Jesus trusted in the Father for all things. It says he came into the world and made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a bondservant. He humbled himself, became obedient even to the death of the cross. But the specific example we want to expand on tonight is that little phrase from verse 2 that says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured. Jesus knew what the scriptures foretold and prophesied about himself. Not only did he know that he would suffer and die at the hands of sinful men, not only did he know that he would be raised to life on the third day, but also that he would ascend to the throne of heaven, to the right hand of the Father. And, and also that a time would come when all of those whom the Father has given to him, he would present faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And that we too would share in his glory as we become joint heirs with Jesus, as we become his brethren having been born of God. This was all part of the joy that was set before him. It means Jesus didn't lose sight of it. Knowing what lied ahead for him as he walked among us, knowing that he would be despised and rejected, that he would be wounded and bruised for our transgressions, suffering and dying, even the death of the cross, Jesus endured for the joy that was set before him. He didn't lose sight of the glory that would follow the suffering. Knowing that because of his obedience, he would be highly exalted, he would be given the name that is above every name, and he would be made Lord over all and judge of the living and the dead. So the question I have tonight is, what is the joy that is set before us? What things must we not lose sight of that will enable us to run our race with endurance? Jesus has set us the perfect example how to run the race with endurance. And again, the point that is being made in this text is the, that it's essential that we do not lose sight of that joy that has been set before us. 
So what's written in verse 2, I believe he expands on later in the chapter. So let's look at the verses that we have for us tonight, beginning uh, in verse 18 of chapter 12. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that they would not be spoken, begged that the word would not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it should be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Verse 22, but you have come to, the, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of this new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So this first, the first thing he points out in this section, to these, he's writing originally to these first century Jewish Christians. And to us, he's, he's pointing out the contrast between the old and the new, cov new covenant. And some of them, as we know, were reluctant to embrace it fully. They were like those in the movie The Fiddler on the Roof. How many of you have seen The Fiddler on the Roof? Okay, if you haven't seen it, you've got to see it. It's a classic, right? If you've seen it, you'll remember the, the main character, Tevye. Picture him in your mind's eye. Remember when he was confronted with a new idea, challenged, that challenged the old ways passed down, passed down from the ancestors, he would throw up his hands and what would he say? Tradition. You got to see the movie if you haven't seen it. Some of these first century Jews who heard the gospel of grace were reluctant to fully embrace this new and living way. This new and living way that was being preached to them was they were hearing for the first time that the righteousness of God comes by faith. It comes by faith in Christ Jesus. They were hearing about the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, the Son of God. They're hearing about his eternal priesthood and his priestly ministry, which is now in heaven. And they were also being told that the law had been fulfilled, that it was no longer about bringing your sacrifices to the temple or being circumcised or observing the feasts. And I can imagine some of them, when hearing about these things, would throw up their hands and cry, tradition. <laughs> Same reaction. So here again, as throughout the whole book of Hebrews, the writer shows the superiority of the new covenant, how much better it is than the old, which was fading away and could never have brought anyone to completion of eternal life in Christ. And here I think he's, he's kind of saying to them at this point, really? Have you ever, have, have, ever had someone say that to you? If you, you're, you're trying to make your case and uh, you know, you're, you're laying out uh, your side of things and they're just not, they're not buying it. And they say to you, really? You know, you got to have a little attitude, really? 
I kind of wonder if that's, that's where the writer of Hebrews is, is, is at at this point. He says, do you really want to hold on to the old? Do you want to continue relating to God as your ancestors have done? Remember, he says, remember how it all began and what it was all about. Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was about the giving of the law, as we know. It was about rewards and punishments. And God was revealing his holiness and his awesome power and his justice. And it says here it was, it was terrifying. Terrifying. They had to keep their distance. The mountain could not even be touched. Even their animals had to be put to death if, if they'd crossed the boundaries. It says it burned with fire. And it, to come into God's presence meant blackness and darkness and tempest. And when the trumpet sounded and God spoke, they begged Moses, you be the one. You be the one to, he to hear from God. And then it says Moses himself was terrified. At one point he said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Could you imagine if that's what it was like for us still today? If, if it meant to come into God's presence that at an appointed time we all had to go to the base of some mountain. And from there, God would descend and, and speak to us and give us the next law. I think, you know, and, and could you imagine? It, the only thing I can think of that would come close is if we had to go to the base of some active volcano, you know, and this thing is rumbling and, you know, and it's starting, the earth is starting to shake and you, and you want to run for your life before you get wiped out. I think that's the, the kind of fear of the Lord that they were experiencing. So what is he saying to them and to us? He's saying, when you respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and enter into the new covenant, you must understand that this is a, a new and living way. In John 1, it says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So he's making the contrast. During the old covenant, God was revealing his holiness, his justice, and man's sinfulness. And you remember after Mount Sinai, he also established the priesthood and the sacrifices where God was revealing also his, now his mercy, his willingness to cover their sin. But we know that it all revealed the need for God's justice to be satisfied and for our pardon to be purchased by one who would have to die in our place. So God made his point with the old covenant. The law was meant to lead us to Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Listen to these verses for a moment from Galatians 3. He asks, is the law then against the promise of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined us all under sin, that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which, is, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So again, what he could be saying to them in verses 
these verses from Hebrews, Hebrews 12 is, really? Do you really want to continue or go back to the old covenant? He's saying in these verses, remember how it all began. Remember what it's all about. This is not what you come to when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, another point that he may be making, notice he says, you have not come to the mountain that may be touched. That mountain can also represent all that is physical and all that is temporal and all that will, all that will not last, all that is fading away. In 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, it says, while we do not look at things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, because the things which are seen are temporal. They're temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. So what we come to as believers in Jesus Christ, what we enter into by faith is no, re- no less real, but it is unseen. And it is eternal. We understand that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. But we also understand that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, which we'll hear more about next week. We understand that we have an inheritance that is incorruptible. It's undefiled. It does not fade away. We understand that our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And like Abraham, we too are looking forward to the new Jerusalem. It says in the previous chapter, Hebrews 11, that Abraham waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. This is all a part of the joy that is set before us. This is what I believe we must not lose sight of. When the next storm comes into your life, the next hardship or suffering or trial, knowing the will of God that you must run your race with endurance, remembering the joy that is set before you will enable you to endure. So let's look again at the list that we're given here in these verses in Hebrews 12. What have we come to? He says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels. You've come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. To God, the judge of all. To the spirits of just men made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So I have a question for you tonight before we go on. Are you looking forward to heaven? Really? Do you really believe the best is yet to come? This is from Colossians 3, where we are exhorted, if you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above not on things on earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory.
How many of you have seen the movie Heaven is for Real or read the book? Okay. It's in the theaters right now. I thought it was a good movie. Um, if you don't know, it's based on a true story of a, a very young boy who, while he was undergoing an operation, he um, claims that he went to heaven. He told his family that uh, I, I saw Jesus. Um, I saw relatives. He, he mentioned relatives he'd never met before. I mentioned a, a, a sister that he was never told about. It was a miscarriage. So it's pretty interesting. I'm not really sure what to make of it. But I get more excited about the descriptions of heaven that I read in the scriptures. In fact, many believe that when Jesus told his disciples that when he said, I go and prepare a place for you, many believe that Jesus has been overseeing the construction of the new Jerusalem for the past 2,000-some years. In any event, it's going to blow our minds. I just want to prepare you. If you haven't thought much about it, it's going to blow our minds. I'd like to read, uh, read about it again tonight, the description, in a minute. Because that's, I believe, exactly what the writer of Hebrews would have us do. To remind us of the joy that is set before us. First of all, seeing Jesus, that's going to, you know, and to be in his presence, that's going to be the fullness of joy. We know. The fullness of joy is, is in his presence. But there's so much more that he is preparing for us. Notice he, he refers in these verses to it as Mount Zion. Mount Zion was one of the, the name of one of the hills that Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem, was built on. But now we're talking about location, location, location. Amen? We're talking about the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. Which will ultimately, as it says in the book of Revelations, descend, descend to the new earth and God will dwell with men. But that's another, story, another study. But if you were to die today, it sounds to me like you would check into the New Jerusalem. Would you be escorted to your private condo? I don't know. But somehow, we're all going to live in this glorious city, and we're all going to get along. Amen? It's a miracle. So, Turn to Revelation 21. I think it would be good for us just to read uh, the description of the new Jerusalem and ask yourself, why are these descriptions in the, in, in the scripture? Why did God include these for us? Could it be for the joy that is set before us? Okay. Let's read it together. I'm going to start in uh, Revelation 21. I'm going to start in verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away into the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. 
Her light was, the li was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also she had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and the twelve angels, and twelve angels at the gates, and the names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall, and the city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man that is of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. I'll do my best on these. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire. The third, help me out, chalcedony. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. sardonyx. The sixth, sardius, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysophrase. Say it again. Chrysophrasis, okay. Eleventh, jacinth, and the twelfth, amethyst. Some of those I knew well. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there. And, there shall, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter in anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's go on, just a few, uh, few more verses in chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear, clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Do you ever wonder why God gave us an imagination? Many things can be used for evil and can be used for good. I think God intended us to be able to read something like this, you know, combined with 
the, glory, the glories that we see in, this, in the world he's created and just begin to imagine how much more glorious is this city. We can tr- start to see it in our mind's eye just a little bit and carry it around with us and just, just be in awe and wonder. You notice that it mentioned twice the throne of God was there. Turn to Revelation 4. I think it would be good for us to read a description of the throne room. Revelation 4, the whole chapter is John's description of his vision of the throne room of heaven. So let's read Revelation 4. John said, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, a second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, these obviously are angels, were full of eyes around and within, And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And cast their thrones, or excuse me, their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Awesome. Okay, go back with me to Hebrews 12. Let's look again at who will be there in this new Jerusalem. Who will be its citizens? Who all makes up its population? Now, remember in Revelation 21, we learn that there's no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. So again, the heavenly Jerusalem in Hebrews 12 is also called the city of the living God. So obviously God is there. And God is doing wondrous things there. This city is a happening place, okay? It's full of life. Things are happening. So not only is it mind-blowing beautiful, but there's a lot going on. Much more than just us touring around. 
in awe and wonder. God is doing wondrous things there. This city is alive. It's a city of the living God. Next, he says, there is an innumerable company of angels. I love to wonder what our wonder about what our interaction will be with angels when we arrive in the new Jerusalem. Will we sit down and meet our guardian angel who was with us all the time, who starts listening off, I, I, I delivered you from this, I saved you from that, I, I kept you from this, you know, all these things that he, he, he rescued us from? Or will we meet other angels who you know, when in this age we thought we were entertaining strangers and an angel will lift up a wing and say, that was me. I just wonder. But he says there will be countless angels in the city, all over the place. It's going to be amazing. Next he says in verse 23, We also come to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. So there's no question that everyone who believes and is saved in this age will be in the new Jerusalem. If you belong to Christ, your name is registered there as a citizen. The next he links together God the judge of all and the spirits of just men made perfect. Just men made perfect can refer to every person who has ever lived who has been justified by God because of their faith in Jesus Christ. God's provision for us to be saved. I was reminded of what it says in Romans 8. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the the firstborn among many brethren, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So people who enter the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem have come to the completion, having received the end of their faith, the salvation of their souls. These are the just men who have been made perfect. Then he talks about Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So again, Jesus obviously is there, but he refers specifically to him as the mediator of this new covenant. I think what he's impressing upon us is that the cost of the covenant was his blood. And if it wasn't for the cross... And the shedding of his precious blood, no one would ever enter in to this new city, this glorious new Jerusalem. Because it's only by faith, as we know, in the blood of Christ, that cleanses a man from all sin. And his blood speaks better things than Abel. When Abel was murdered by his brother, you may recall that God God told Cain, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me. From the ground. Abel's blood spoke from the earth and cried out for justice. It declared Cain's guilt and drove him away in despair. The blood of Jesus Christ makes a better declaration. His blood now speaks from heaven, announcing mercy and freedom 
from guilt and condemnation. And his blood declares the very means by which the way has been opened into the presence of God. This is from uh, familiar verses from John 14 that I wanted to read. Jesus said to his disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. So heaven is for real. And I believe if we keep in mind the joy that is set before us, it will help us run our race with endurance. Jesus also said at the end of Revelation, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. To give to everyone according to his works. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter through the gates of the city. So for now, it's a matter of pressing on. As we look forward to the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and to our inheritance and entering into this glorious place, we need to keep in mind that for now it means pressing on. Run your race with endurance. This is what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3. He says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. That I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things that are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. In Christ Jesus. So we press on. Amen? We press on. Because we will be entering into a kingdom and receiving our reward. Rewards for faithful stewardship for what God has entrusted to us in this age. It won't be just about entering into a glorious city. But standing before the Lord hoping to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Does it get you excited to talk about heaven? I'm not sure everybody's excited. On a scale of 1 to 10, how excited do you get? That might be a little convicting, 11, okay, good. Might be a little convicting. There's a little book I would encourage you to read if you haven't read it. It's called The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. Just a little book, but it's packed. It's packed. So well written, I think. Very helpful in, in, for us understanding what the Bible means when it says, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. What does it take for us to keep in mind this joy that is set before us that we read about tonight? How can we make sure that we don't lose sight of it? I think the best way is to keep reading your Bible. Just keep reading your Bible. If we will be faithful to be people of the Word, students of the Bible, just reading through it, you'll come to these kinds of glorious texts very often that remind us of the the joy that is set before us and the exhortation to press on, run with endurance. God is not unjust. He will not forget your labor of love right, in your faithful service as we minister to the saints and serve one another in love. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word tonight. Lord, we do want to keep the, that joy that is set before us. Lord, we, want, we, we don't want to lose sight of it. God, the glorious things that are being prepared, this glorious city, Lord, this glorious dwelling place where, where you are, Lord, where your presence is, the city that you illuminate, Lord, where we will see you and, and serve you and rejoice in you. How glorious, Lord, it will be. So we thank you, God, once again for this new covenant, Jesus, that is in your blood, that you have made possible when you came and willingly laid down your life. Lord, when you shed your precious blood so that by faith we could be forgiven, we could be pardoned, we could receive the righteousness of God. And our citizenship now is in heaven, in that glorious city where we will forever be with the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this glorious hope. And we long for your appearing. We say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. Amen. So, Greg, you, are you going to come on up? And um, you have prayer cards there that we'll collect in a, in a moment if you want us to pray for you or for someone or something.